from India's largest newsroom I'm Arun George and this is the Times of India podcast We're in the month of Ramzan the holiest month in the Islamic calendar It is during this period that Allah is believed to have revealed the Quran to the Prophet Muhammad to guide people. It's a period of introspection, prayer and fasting. There are around 172 million Muslims in India according to the 2011 census and the community constitutes nearly 14% of our population. However, what seldom discussed is the community's practices and how Islam spread in India. Also, how Islam in India acquired a distinctly different character from other regions. In today's episode of the Times of India podcast, we're speaking with the author and mythologist Devdutt Patnaik about the spread of Islam in India. We talk about how Islam adapted to spread in India and how it changed India. Devdutt, so how far back does Islam date and when did it make its appearance in India? I mean, it depends on who you ask. If you ask a very staunch Muslim, he'll say when creation began, Islam began. So um, you know that's a very orthodox mythological view when god created the world islam came with god and therefore the rules came with that and the rules changed over time and the final prophet every time he would give messages through various prophets like um in islam adam is a prophet um noah is a prophet moses of course is a prophet jesus is a prophet not the son of god as in, G- in christianity and then prophet muhammad comes 1400 years ago and he's the final prophet and he is the last of the prophets and therefore the final form that we have today is considered the final form and we are approaching kayamat and we are approaching the end of the world so that's the way the construction from a mythological point of view from a historical point of view of course islam 1400 years ago is what happens um towards the end of the 6th century and the beginning of the 7th century is when there is a great um intellectual revolution in arabia which changes the world forever it's a dramatic change The second part of the question is the, when did it come to India? Now Indians were trading with Arabia all throughout, right from Harappan times. Ships have been sailing along the western coast of India, so those parts were familiar with these merchants and trading communities who were obviously exposed to this intellectual revolution where uh, this prophet emerges in Mecca. So naturally, these ideas reached India very early. In fact, and the funny thing is, and this is something that I'm surprised nobody talks about. When we talk of the oldest mosques in India we refer to the Cheraman Mosque in um Kerala we talk about the Chera king seeing the moon split uh, which is uh, one of the few miracles attributed to prophet Muhammad and they say that he um uh, this he witnessed it from Kerala and he travels all the way to Arabia and the Cheraman Mosque is built at that time so around the 7th century however there is an earlier mosque in Gujarat Gujarat was trading and obviously there would be merchant settlements around that area and what we call the gulf of khambath in the western coast there is a place called goga and there is a ruin there which is called the bardar uh, mosque bardar the, the the building of the outsiders and this mosque is very strange it, it's a ruin right now small mosque and it has the qibla where they pray uh, facing mecca but here the spot of prayer is 20 degrees off and directs towards jerusalem 
not towards Mecca. And that's very interesting because after the prophet leaves the city of Mecca, after a lot of hostility, when his first wife dies, he moves to uh, Medina. And for a few months, he tells people to pray facing Jerusalem. And then he says, no, we will pray looking at Mecca. So this mosque perhaps was built at that time. That could be as early as 610 uh, AD. So that could be the earliest Islamic structure in India built by merchants who lived in the Gujarat coast in the Gulf of Khambata 1400 years ago. So we have Islam then coming into India and we are currently enraptured with this version of how it kind of sweeps in uh, and principally the damage caused to temples and other sites. But it also comes with a massive amount of influence and a number of people who switch to the religion as well. Could you talk about that? So, uh, Islam does come along the coastal regions, lots of people. So, we know that there were Muslim communities in Kerala, in Karnataka, um, in Goa, uh, around along the uh, Maharashtra coast, around Gujarat coast. So this whole area, there were a lot of Muslims. Around the 10th century, you have raids of people coming. And that's when the famous Mahmud of Ghazni's campaign happens. He comes to Saurashtra. He comes to Somnath temple. Uh, whether he destroys the temple or just raids and desecrates the temple, various versions exist. Because if you read the Islamic chronicles, they keep amplifying what he did because over time, Muhammad of Ghazni becomes the man who brought Islam to India and he becomes a hero. He was probably just a, a marauder. Uh, it depends on who you talk to again. Historians will tell you something. Islamic scholars will tell you something. Hindutva scholars will come up with some new versions. 200 years later, the Muhammad Ghuri comes and they are all coming from Central Asia. They're new converts. and They established the Delhi Sultanate in 800 years ago. That's when Islam really physically comes to India. Uh, and from a political point of view, they why do they get support of the people? They're saying we're establishing Islam. It's, you need a big narrative. We're going to establish a new religion. We're going to get rid of these pagans. And obviously temples have to be broken because in India, temples are where the wealth was stored. But yes, for India, it was a traumatic event because culture changed dramatically. North India especially, there is a massive shift in... And it's happening slowly, right? They don't use the word Muslim. In the writings, we don't find the word Muslim. They use the word Tajik. Yavana, Mlecha, Turuka. So these are uh, local words. Yavana means Greeks. Mlecha means barbarian. Tajik is from the Tajik lands. Turuka is the Turks. They are not using the word Musalman, which comes only in the 13th century. So it comes after almost uh, 200-300 years of these violent attacks. But obviously these attacks are coming and they've changed. They completely changed the face of um, the northern part of India dramatically. And meanwhile, you said like it was already there in the south, right? But was it the same kind of spread? Like what pulled people towards Islam? They were mostly traders. And you know what happens in trading families? We find uh, many trading families settled here. So they would marry women here and they would have wives in their own Arab countries. So you have a wife in India, you come here, you stay here, you go there. In, in Kerala, you have this... Uh, word which is used in the coastal regions called uh, Maple, which is really the son-in-law. And the son-in-law could be Muslim, he could be Arab, he could be Jewish. Even in Tamil Nadu, you have these stories of merchants who are traveling and they're not even really tra traveling just to India, right? They're traveling to Indonesia, they're traveling to Malaysia. 
So it's really a mercantile marital relationship. It's not like some major proselytizing going on. But of course, when once you have uh, the major waves of Delhi sultans coming in, you do have local conversion happening. And a major role is played by the Sufis and the Ghazis who are uh, spreading across the countryside and they are the missionaries and they're spreading the ideas. Now, who are the Sufis? They're educated. They know a little bit of the Quran. They know a little bit about medicine. They know a little bit about astronomy. They know a little bit about law. Um, and they're traveling in the countryside. And they are really spreading the word. Until you reach the major cities, you don't really encounter the elite. You encounter the common people and you're talking to them. And the common people really don't care about religion. They're caring about survival. And um, you do have the Sufis playing a very important role here. The common man doesn't really know the difference. He's celebrating all religions. He has got a holy man. You know, at once upon a time, there was a holy man, the Buddha and the Bodhisattva and the Nath Yogis and who travel the countryside and you know, the Jain monks. You pray to them and they give you things that you want. And then there's another, this peer appears. This peer starts to appear everywhere. And you have this concept of the Panchapir. Suddenly you have these peers across uh, Gangetic Plains, across Rajasthan. And there are stories of them half being half Hindu, half Muslim. Uh, it's not very clear. And now we are making this very clear division. This is Hindu, this is Muslim. It didn't, until it became political nationalism of the 19th century, this was not such a big deal in our country. Um, people were just doing what they did. There are these folk tales in Bengal, especially you hear all these folk tales of peers. They are not talking so much about Pegambar. This is the Prophet Muhammad. They're really talking about holy men, peer. And this is, of course, a problem area in Islam because it's not pure Islam. It is um, folk Islam because it is dealing with literally idol worship, the dargahs. India is famous for its dargahs, not through the Pagambar, the mosque is a very uh, sultan and the king is interested in the that caliphate idea. But the common man wants peer, that is a holy man. And this has to be understood. Indian Islam was Darga based Islam. And Darga is not acceptable in Orthodox, Arabic and Persian. It's there in Persia to a degree because it originated in Persia and it spread from Persia. But in India, the Darga became super big. Even today, you talk of uh, Delhi, I'll talk about Nizamuddin Aulia. And, um, you know, even the peers were divided amongst the Shias and the Sunnis and there are these divides. But really, India is land of the peers. And it's something that um, is often forgotten. It's not the caliphate which shapes India. It is the peer culture, the Darga culture which shapes India. And it's just that nowadays religion has become a very big conversation because politicians have made us. They don't want to deal with real issues like food, clothing, shelter uh, and giving you jobs. We are not reading up enough. I, I myself am shocked at how little I knew about Indian history and, and how Islam plays a very important role in shaping Hindu thought also. And that's really one of the innovations with, that happen in Islam in India, right? But there are other local things that are also kind of folded into Islam in India. Why do we have so many sort of unorthodox things, like you said, folded into Islam in India? See, the orthodox and the unorthodox have always coexisted until it becomes problematic for the elite in all cultures. So Sufism as an idea emerges in Persia. Islam spread and changed the world completely in the 8th century. It spread from Arabia. It's... Uh, right up to Spain, 
it spread. The Mediterranean Roman Empire was broken into two. The caliphate, as we call it, really exists between the 8th century and the 12th century. In the 12th century, 13th century, the Mongols come from Mongolia and they completely destroy everything. And it is a traumatic event. The Islamic world typically is almost come to an end as we think of it. And that's when Sufism rises because people realize it's not about just law. It's also about love and mysticism. And all the Sufis are very creative people. They're singers, they're dancers. They don't really fit into society. They take local practices. I mean, if you read some of the stories, the you know the Sufi saint would they would have these very fabulous stories of him riding a flying camel, riding flying carpets. In fact, uh, in Bangladesh, the airport I think is named after uh, a Sufi saint. His teacher gives him something to smell and says, "If you smell the earth, which smells like this, that's where you have go and settle." And that happens to be the Gangetic Plain. The smell of that land. He comes there. When you go to Sundarbans, you have, um, you know, the goddess Bon Bibi, which is the forest, uh, the lady of the forest. And then you have Shah Jangali and Ghazi Mia. And the images of them are they're riding tigers. They have snakes in their hand. They're riding crocodiles. You have these ideas of Panchpeer, five uh, peers. Um, and uh, they're found in Rajasthan. You find them in Bengal. Um, and they have all these magical stories. And really, it's very simple. They gave me a child. My missing cattle were found, harvest was better, disease was cured. All the mundane things, all the mundane things for which we go to peers, which is why we would go to temples. All the devas and the local gods do just that. So that is how really Islam really spreads. And the f thing is in the 19th century when, you know, the elite in India started going to Europe to study the law, they rediscovered the caliphate and they rediscovered pure Islam and this whole idea of Wahhabism. I mean, they came back and they looked at the local people. The local people didn't speak Arabic or Parsi. They spoke, um, they spoke uh, Bengali and they had these folk tales and they were enjoying these folk tales. And their connection with Islam was through these Bengali, like Nobi Bonsho of um, Sayyid Sultan uh, or Seri Puranam in Tamil. There is a Seri Puranam, the story of the prophet in Tamil, which is written in this Tamil poetry style. People said, oh, this is haram, haram, this is wrong because it's the local languages. We should go back to um, Arabic to the point that even today, you know, when I was growing up, everybody said Ramzan, right? Now everybody says Ramadan because Ramzan is from the Persian sound and India was influenced by the Persian court culture. So, you know, there are three layers of Islam in my view when I look at India. There is an Arab version that has now become popular, which is coming really from the Gulf influence on India. Then there is the traditional Islam that North India and we were familiar with was the, where the Farsi, the Persian culture was there. And then there is a folk level, the third level, which is the local language Islam spoken in Bengali, spoken in Tamil, spoken in Malayalam. There are songs in Malayalam which talks about the marriage of the prophet with Aisha. And these are not something that you will find in other parts of the world. And they are following really an Indian culture of marriage songs and they're taking Islamic motifs. And... Today, that could be seen as controversial because the pure, this, this notion of what is pure Islam, just as this pure Hinduism and this pure Christianity. So you have these, you know, what is called radicals coming up with purity. But in India, we have to understand the social structure, which is fairly complex. So is that also why we have so many sects of Islam within India? Like we have Sunnis, Khojas, Boris. Nature is something that doesn't like this homogeneity. Homogeneity is something is an artificial construction and humans like homogeneity. Nature hates homogeneity. 
and therefore human society will always crumble into different varieties. That's true of Christianity, that's true of Islam, that's true of Hinduism, that's true of everybody. And uh, in Islam, of course, the division begins with the Shia-Sunni divide. It happens very soon after the Prophet's passing away as to who should lead the Muslim world, which leads to the Battle of Karbala and which leads to the split of the Shia and the Sunni, the Shias being the Persian culture. And that uh, is the big divide. In India, you have really a more complex thing because uh, we have both the Shias and the Sunnis. And remember, there's a North Indian Islam with the Mughal court is following. And the, really, Akbar said, I'm above all this. And he really followed very a lot of Hindu practices of Jharoka Darshan, of people falling at his feet. And he loved Tula Bharam, which is a Hindu ritual for kings. Tula Bharam, where you sit on a um, uh, weighing pan balance. These are all practices in the Mughal court. Holi was celebrated. So he said, I'm above all this. That's why he came with Dine Ilahi, his own little uh, way of describing his... He created his own little because he was so powerful. And then, of course, the caste system plays a very big role in India. While they would all pray in the same mosque, there was very clearly a, a class divide. So there are hierarchies even in Islam. Uh, different kinds of uh, hierarchies exist as in any society. So it's not like a homogenous, the way we like to reduce it. It's like saying that, you know, Hindutva claims that there is no caste system in India. And Islam says there is equality in Islam. That's not true. The Arabs do see themselves differently from the Persians. The Persians see themselves different from Southeast Asians. And finally, you know, you spoke of the Ganga Jamuni um, sort of tezib and that influence that both the religions had on each other. And you've also written in the past about how Hindu and Muslim art and culture drew from each other. And now we're at a stage where we want to, again, like you said, put it in very neat silos. What do we lose when we do that? See, we lose our humanity. We're trying to create a world where we are unkind people. We don't want to share things with each other. And it happens from all ends of the spectrum, right? We are not willing to understand that society is continuously exchanging ideas. And there is, of course, tension there. But the question is, you don't demonize one group over the other. And um, what is happening nowadays is uh, demonization of one group of people. And that has political dividends, I guess. So it helps the politician. For the politicians, necessary to do this kind of... But for common people, I think it is to realize that what is it that makes us not, you know, um, live with our brother? We are foolish. Human beings are foolish people and we make foolish decisions. And that's how really culture emerges from this suffering, from this trauma. I don't think it's a bad thing or a good thing. These are incidents that happen and they transform us. And they hopefully for a better, but sometimes for the worse. Today's episode was produced by Jairaj Singh, Sunai Marathe and Anuja Singh. For a daily spotlight on people, ideas and stories that matter, subscribe to us. We're available on TY+, Spotify, Apple, Google Podcasts and all other platforms of your choice. For any news tips, email us at typodcast at timesinternet.in.